0: you're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Today we're going to continue in this four-part series that we're calling Dreams, Dreams for a Faithful Tomorrow. And these really are uh, the dreams of our church. These are kind of answering the questions, what do we hope for? Not just in the new year, but what do we hope for all the time? So we're going to go to James, uh, the book of James, and we'll read here starting in verse uh, 13, chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. As I mentioned, the aim of this series is to, is to, to really to talk about the dreams of our church. It's, and so it's good kind of for the nature of this sermon series to be somewhat like a family meeting. Kind of for us to talk about what we desire as a church and desire most and how to be shaped according to God's word. A time to cast honest vision for who we want to be as, as people. Not just for ministry growth, but for relational growth and gospel growth. Above all, we want to be faithful people, but this isn't just for our church. It's not just a vision for our church. It's a vision for anybody who desires to to know God more and to really ask that question, what does God want for us? What does he desire for us? And so if you're new to Holy Cross, if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're skeptical, if you're just asking a lot of questions, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, then this series is for you as well, and I hope these become your dreams uh, for your life, and we have four dreams for a faithful tomorrow. Today, we look at the dream to live in transformational community with others. Transformational community with others. Some of you might think, that doesn't sound like a dream. That sounds more like a nightmare. I've been spending my whole life trying to live more by the principle of what people write in my high school yearbook. Don't ever change, right? Right? High school is awesome. Don't ever change. And we've kind of been living by that motto. And yet, we see here as we begin to talk about transformational community, that God is changing us. He has an agenda for our life that we wouldn't stay the same. But his agenda for our life is that we would be transformed, that we would be changed. As we begin to talk about transformational community, I want to share a point of, of personal wrestling in my own heart, when it comes to transformational community. There's been one question that has often been asked that has bothered me when it comes to kind of creating community, and and specifically in the church. It's bothered me. It's kind of haunted me. And the question is this, is your church a place where broken and sinful people can find healing and forgiveness? And I was always a bit insecure about this question. It's been asked a lot. Been to a lot of different church uh, leadership conferences and and listened to a lot of leadership podcasts for how to create healthy community. And this question would come up several times over the course of the last decade. And when it was asked, it would always make me feel a bit insecure because I was afraid that the answer might be no. Is your church a place where we're broken and sinful people can find healing and forgiveness. I was afraid it might be no, but I really, really wanted it to be yes. I wanted to be a part of a community like that. I wanted to create a community like that. It's always a really messy question, isn't it? It invites you into thinking about things that you just don't want to think about. It, it's, it, begins, it makes you think about pain sin and suffering and grief and betrayal. It gets you to think about how you react when other people hurt you. It makes you think about your own sins against other people. I mean, I imagine if I came over to your house for dinner one night and between bites of chicken, I just paused and said, hey, this chicken is really juicy. Let me ask you, when your kids mess up and fail, would they feel valued, loved, and transformed by your discipline? you know, and then just kind of go back to eating chicken? Or would they feel shamed and rejected? Would they feel minimized and small? Might make you feel a little insecure, wouldn't it? Kind of touches a a raw part in your heart, because maybe the answer is no. Maybe, Maybe when your kids mess up, or friends, or a spouse, maybe when they sin against you, the way that you approach them To bring restoration is not a way that they feel valued and loved and transformed. Maybe I should ask your kids that question. Maybe I should ask your spouse or your friends, your co-workers, if their environment with you and their friendship with you is a place where broken and sinful people can find healing and forgiveness. Does a place like that even exist? I mean, can you really even find a place like that? Is that just a make-believe place where sinful people People can find healing, forgiveness, a place of honesty where courage can be married with, with compassion and truth telling. I've had to acknowledge and repent of ways that I have unintentionally and unknowingly helped create a culture, even at Holy Cross, that affirms a, a kind of spiritual experience and a relationship that's not messy and kind of put together and tidy and clean. And I've heard comments throughout the years from people from our church that have made me feel simultaneously grief and pride. Some of those comments sound like this. I feel like I don't fit in here. Everyone just seems so put together. so put together." I feel uncomfortable sharing what's really going on. I feel like I'm the only person with real problems in my life. Or if I tell you how I really feel and what's really going on in my heart, you're never going to talk to me again those are real comments that I've heard. Have you felt that? Have you ever felt that even in our church? You know, none of this, none of these comments are unique to me or not even unique to our church. I mean, people just fear rejection by nature. That's part of the, our broken humanity is that we're just afraid of that. We're afraid of saying, here's what I am and here's who I am and here's how I feel because they're not sure if that's going to be met with with rejection, or if it's going to be met with compassion and acceptance. And that's why this is one of those dreams for a faithful tomorrow, for our church, something that we want to be, to live in transformational fellowship with others. But transformation is God's agenda for us to be made more and more into the image of Christ. And our passage today shows us the way, shows us how to do that. And James, one of Jesus's more uh, well-known apostles, and his half-brother shows us the foundation for transformational community, the goal of transformational community, and then the practice of transformational community. We'll talk about those three today. Let's look at the foundation. I mean, what does it all rest on? What's the, how does it? What, what does it rest on, the, the, the transformational community, that community that we want to be connected with one another? The foundation of transfer, uh, transformational community is it's relationship, but, but not just any relationship. It's a relationship based on theology. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, if you glance back at the first three verses or for, first couple verses of the passage that we read, you're going to see something in here really neat. It's, you're going to see relationships working inseparably and very closely together. You're going to see a relationship between the Christian and the Christian, where they care for one another, they're aware of one another's burdens. You're going to see the relationship between a Christian and Christ, where the Christian is going to Christ on behalf of a hurting brother or sister. And then you're going to see a relationship between Christ and the Christian, where Christ is intervening in the life of the Christian and restoring that Christian or raising that Christian up. The Bible repeatedly describes our entry into the Christian life in terms of a relationship with God and with others, and those, and those two are inseparable. We were once far off from God. We were cut off from God as sinners and, and, and even called his enemies. And we were brought near to God by the grace of God, and we are thrust into this relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a relationship with the Father through the Son and and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when God extends his mercy and grace to us and we acknowledge our need for him, we are thrust into this bond that is so unique and so powerful, so close, a bond of friendship and peace with God that that can never be disconnected. And he, the Bible talks about this relationship. It's not just a, a, a head knowledge. It's not just an uh, acknowledgement and, um, of doctrine and, and theology. It's a relationship. And the Bible says something almost simultaneously by nature of that relationship with God. When we begin a relationship with God, we are adopted And he uses this language throughout the scriptures. We are adopted into a family. We become part of God's family. And we are members of that family. We are welcomed into this family. And we cannot have one without the other, they are inseparable. It cannot be a, just me and God, me and God on an island, and I'll work through my salvation, I'll work through my sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, just apart from any community. The Christian community, the Christian family is vital to our Christian identity. The relationship that God has brought us into is not based on what we bring. It's not based on what we accomplish. It's not based on what we do. It's based on the grace of God. It's all something that's been given to us, not something that we have earned or deserve. And isn't it true that we have been conditioned to find the basis of our value in a community based on what we do and what we've accomplished and what we have, what we like, who we hang out with, what our interests are? I mean, everything, every kind of community in the world is based upon Affinity groups, singles and primetimers and married and, and um, uh, homeschool and essential oils groups, and you know, you got whatever. There's a group for everybody, and the church can easily kind of mimic and model after a culture that just separates people based on who they are, what they do, what they like. And so we bring that into the church so we feel comfortable with people that have the similar personality, similar ethnicity, similar jobs. Anyone who uses, yeah, anyone been on the internet lately? (laughs) Anyone who uses the internet, social media, watches TV, are encouraged in a dozen different ways to distance themselves from people that are not like you. And to gather with people that are just like you because that's where you will be safe. And each group of people have a reason to despise the other group for who they are and what they do and what they believe. And James is warning us and any any one of us who can articulate the gospel beauty but remain shallow in our application of it. While we maintain our identification with our race and our nationality and our gender and our family and our communities of neighborhood and other various connections that we have, the most fundamental thing about us is that we are all sinners saved by grace. And that is the identity that is the foundation for our community and our fellowship. In ourselves, we are lost, we are flawed, we are undeserving, but in Christ, we are completely accepted, we are adopted and delighted in by the one in the universe that we adore the most. And so you have all of these people from all of these different areas and other different connections and identities that are all crying out for a savior and we're all coming together focusing on the one we love the most and the thing we love the most. Becoming more like Christ, and this relationship transforms us. It is meant to transform us. We are supposed to change. And there's so many comments like we say, "Well, that's just not how I was raised." I understand that you're supposed to change. You get married and say, "I hope that my spouse never changes." She's supposed to change. He is supposed to change. I finally found the community that I love. I hope it never changes. It's supposed to change. It's the most deliberate, we must deliberately fight against the powers of sin and division of, that are so strong in our life, that are so strong in our heart, that are so strong in our culture. In fact, a good and dear friend of mine who Over the last five, six years, who's probably been most influential in my life when it comes to changing in regards to this, is a friend, Uh, she is um, the director of the Surge Network in Phoenix, and we're a part of this network and benefit from it. It's an interdenominational community of churches and pastors trying to become more like Jesus. Her name's Danae Pierre. In her recent book, I want to quote a little bit of what she says in here. She says, if we are to truly see peace, justice, and reconciliation embodied by God's people, we must awaken to the reality of our union with Jesus and our intimate and holy connection to one another. If, When we talk about who we are, who is Holy Cross, I want, the we should take a more faithful image and a more beautiful picture of the beautiful community of God. When we talk about who we are, who are we? If we were to describe Holy Cross, who are we? Young families, engineers, suburbanites, white, middle class, middle management. Who are we? And it's this picture of, should the we of who we are Expand more to reflect the beautiful community of God's people. Our vision as a church, that a community will undoubtedly influence who we invite in and who feels like they belong when they do come here. By God's grace, let us expand the definition, expand our vision for community by operating, opening our lives and hearts and homes to, to both sinners and saints, to doubters and believers, to seekers and to skeptics, to prodigals who have wandered from the faith, and also to Pharisees, to Presbyterians and to non-Presbyterians. I believe you can do it. To young and old, to married and single, to leaders and followers, to extroverts, introverts, and socially awkward, to our own ethnicities and to other ethnicities, nationalities, and cultures. The happy-go-lucky, the depressed, the helpers and those who need help, the creative and the corporate, the blue-collar and the white-collar, conservative and liberal, the affluent and bankrupt, the addicted and the sober, the public-schooled and private-schooled, the homeschooled and charter-schooled, the able-bodied, and those with disabilities, and all who else enter into our community. I'm sure you can find even a dozen more comparisons. And James is highlighting the, the beautiful privilege that it is to have a community that opens the doors to all of these groups that say just Stay with the people who understand you. Are you hurting? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? You're not alone. James is saying grab your family and go to the Father. For he cares for you, and you all are supposed to care for one another. Now I want to differentiate something here. I think it's important. Community is different than relationships. Uh, community is fairly easy to get just show up boom you're in a community good job community 101 just show up and you're a part of it but relationship is risky transformational community transformational relationship fellowship is it's risky consider the first three questions asked by James is anyone among you suffering is anyone cheerful is anyone among you sick to which most of us would answer i have no idea I have no idea. Is anyone sick, cheerful? I don't know what's going on with people. I don't ask what's going on. People don't tell. We kind of keep to ourselves. We're around each other all the time, but I don't know what's going on in their heart. I don't know what's motivating them. I don't know what's, what's grieving them. I don't know what's tearing them down. I don't know where they need a friend. That's community. That's not relationship. Community solves the problem of isolation and loneliness, but relationship solves a problem of a much greater danger than loneliness and isolation, and that's the danger of wandering from the truth and not being transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what's at stake here. That's what James is so passionate about. James addresses the important goal of the transformational community. Let's get into the goal now that we have the foundation. What's the point? What are we after? The goal of transformational community is to reorient our entire lives around what Jesus has done for us on the cross. All roads, all emotions, all conflicts, all situations must lead to the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let's look again at these questions. James asks Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him praise. If anyone's sick, cry out for God's help. He cares for you. We're not defined by our suffering. Rather, our suffering leads into a deeper relationship with Jesus. We're not defined by our cheerfulness or our successes or accomplishments. Rather, our successes are meant us to lead us to give praise to God and gratitude for what he has given to us. We're not defined by our sickness. Rather, our sickness is meant to drive us into the... Awareness of the, our utter dependency on God. As a community, this means that we are to reflect the goodness of God and preach the gospel through our lives as we share our lives with others. The goal of transformational community is to receive the grace of God. It is this giving and receiving. We receive it from the Lord We believe it wholeheartedly and then we extend it to one another and then that person extends it to us and in that we are being shaped more and more by our community and transformed into the image of Christ. Loving one another, forgiving one another, calling one another to confession and repentance, holding one another accountable, challenging each other, restoring each other and then preventing future sins which leads to joy and the glory of God. Isn't this what we all want? The goal is nothing less than our sanctification, as the Bible would say. Look again at verse 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here are As he describes here, four critical movements that happen within a transformational community—you'll kind of see them: confess and repent of our of our sins, be forgiven of our sins, be restored back into that community, and then to prevent future sins. Don't you see that? That's not that doesn't always happen. We confess our sins and say our sorry. Maybe we're not forgiven. Maybe compassion isn't extended. Maybe we are alienated by that person. Maybe we have to find a new community now. Maybe we're forgiven and say, I forgive you, but I just can't have a relationship anymore. It's just, I just hurt too bad. So that person isn't restored back into fellowship. Or maybe they're restored back in, but we keep, a, we keep our distance from that person. And so there's never this continued accountability and sharpening and transformation you know, these things don't happen in isolation. These good things don't happen in isolation in our life. A book that you all read together as a church, the Gospel-Centered Community, many of you did in your life groups. Here's a quote from, that, from one of the chapters there. Did you ever notice how patient you are as long as no one is getting on your nerves? Or how loving you are as long as you're surrounded by people who are easy to love? Or how humble you are as long as you're respected and admired by every other's? Everyone is a saint in isolation. Amen? (laughs) I've always said that about you. (laughs) We're all a saint in isolation. It's in community that our real weaknesses, flaws, and sins are exposed. That's why community is essential, not optional for transformation. We can't become the people God wants us to become outside of community. But we have these weird expectations, don't we? That when someone comes into the church... They should be beyond the need for transformation. But there's a problem with transformational community. It's full of people, isn't it? People who sin. People who have secrets. People who hurt. People who are broken. People who are prejudiced. People who are impatient. People who are uncompassionate. People who are arrogant and prideful and hot-headed, people who are lazy. To truly give ourselves to transformational community, our ideal community must be surrendered. Like our idea of the ideal community must be surrendered. And we say, okay, God, what is the community? You tell me what the community is. You tell me who people are. Tell me who I am. And tell me what you desire to do in a community." conflict and tension do not take God by surprise. The imperfect community actually creates opportunity to give and receive the gospel of grace. The, the, the messiness of a transformational community helps us become a maturing community together that speaks the truth in love and compassion, that speaks the truth and holds each other accountable. And that is good. We, we need that so badly. And it's it's good news because we all need love, we all need forgiveness, we all need correction. We all see things poorly at least the first go around. We all need accountability, we all need truth spoken to us. We all need forgiveness, we need wisdom, we need compassion. Every single one of us, we need that so desperately. If only God would provide a context for all of those things to happen. He has. It's called the church. This is the context. The content is his word that is supposed to speak into our hearts, and we speak it to one another. And when we fail to follow it, we confess that sin to others, and that person comes along and loves us, and restores us, and holds us accountable. How do we do that? Let's look at the practice now. Let's look at the practice of transformational community. How do we do this? I honestly don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have ideas, I have thoughts. And I'm sure you have thoughts too. I have thoughts that I've I've practices that have failed, that haven't worked. I've been discouraged, I've been I've given into apathy saying it's just not worth it. I don't want to do this. I tried to do this and it just didn't work. It wasn't met the way I hoped it would. But here's what we'll do to look at the practice because I have no wisdom to offer on my own on this. And so let's just, as we close, let's just walk through the passage again and see as we walk through it, we're going to see practices of God's people. And, and for today, and there's more, we can continue to pray and think and talk and share and sharpen one another for how to do this in our church and in our world. But let's talk about the ones that God speaks about this morning. And I'll name them, and then we'll kind of, I'll show you where they are. First thing it's going to take, practice That's going to take, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage. This is where James says, are you, are you, are you suffering, then, then let him go and, 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 and and share. If someone's cheerful, let him do this. Let her do this. Let them go. What we're saying here is James is saying the sufferer, the cheerful one, the sick person, there is an invitation for that person to go and open up the reality of their heart, the things that they are privately wrestling with, and open it up to somebody else. That's going to take courage. James is saying he's actually putting the response. I, I looked at this a lot. I tried to dust off my Greek books to figure out who's he talking about here? Who's the one that is actually the initial mover on this. It's the sufferer. It's the cheerful one. It's the sick one. When we are vulnerable and we are hurting, there is an invitation and responsibility for that person to say, I am going to take a chance and let people know that I'm hurting and I need help. And a lot of us say, no, I know how that, how that turned out last time I did that and I'm never doing it again. And so we need courage. Courage. Our courage doesn't come from how it's received. Our courage doesn't come from the affirmation that's given from the other person. Our courage comes from the Lord because remember, we are locked into His love and His grace, and it will never be taken away. Our identity is primarily that we are sinners saved by grace, and nothing can happen to us that can remove us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we are safe, we are secure. And we can take that chance. We can be courageous. It means that we have, when we have the opportunity to share prayer requests, we don't share exclusively about our neighbors or our aunts and uncles or people that are bothering us or our sick dog. Now, those are, we can pray about those things for sure. I'm not mocking those prayer requests. But I rarely hear people actually offering prayer requests that, are, that really actually make them look a little less perfect. Yeah, I'm struggling. This is hard for me. And I need to be reminded of the love of God. Can you help me? So there's an invitation there. Second thing, it will take compassion. Now, I'll say this because the first practice without the second one, catastrophic. And I know you know that. Well, if I'm courageous and it's not met with compassion, I'm never going to do that again. But look at the compassion that is met with the sinner or the hurting person that goes to their brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for help. There is an anointing with oil. Don't you see this? Let them call the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Go together, come together, anoint with oil. What is that? What are we talking about here? This isn't a prescription for healing. It's There's not something mystical going on here. This As we, we learn about anointing and the significance of this, it's a setting apart for God's use. It is a reminding of of God's people, remember who you are. I know you're hurting, you're suffering, you're sick. Remember who you are. You've been set apart by the grace of God. You belong to the Lord Jesus. You are his, and you are safe and secure in his love, and we are with you. We see the practice of people coming alongside the hurting, This could mean physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual fatigue and weariness, depression, anxiety, doubt and confusion, fear. It is this practice what we see, how how do people respond to the hurting person in this passage? It is met with burden bearing, gentleness and concern for their well-being. Let's be that person that also is is courageous, but also the person that meets that scary thing that's been shared with us. Rather than distancing ourselves, it's met with compassion. Some of the sweetest words that we will ever hear when we confess our sin to another person is, you are my brother and I love you. You are my sister and I love you. And I'm not going anywhere. That's what we see here. Another practice as we move through, it will take truth-telling. It will take truth-telling, truth-telling to our own hearts. True love does not wink at sin. True love does not let sin go unaccounted for. We see in this passage, if, you're, if you go and confess and, the one, and, and, and pray together, If anyone wanders from the truth, we see a sin here, and someone brings him back. We're saying, this is a good thing. There is is something that has happened where the the one who has wandered has been brought back through accountability and truth-telling. James says, confess your sins to one another. If the goal of the transformational community is to reorient our lives around what Jesus has done for us, then we must take seriously how we are prone to wander from that reality in our actions and in our behaviors and in our attitudes and how we must be brought back. It is a very dangerous thing to wander from the truth, from wander from the grace of God. And so we must lovingly come alongside one another correct beliefs and thoughts and behaviors in order to point the one to Jesus, the cross and his resurrection as our only remedy for sin. We may have wandered far from truth-telling. Now listen to this. We may have wandered far from truth-telling to other people if the only time we correct their behavior, attitudes or perspective is when we start with this phrase. You really got to read this article. It'll change your life. Okay? I just read this article on the internet yesterday and it'll change the way you think about that. We, the only way to tell the ultimate truth is when Jesus is the hero of the story. When our, when our hearts and our practices and our attitudes are shaped by him, what does Jesus do and how do we follow this example? Do you want to speak the truth? When I say truth-telling, I don't mean just world wisdom, common sense. Truth-telling in here as it's described is, is reminding the broken and hurting and wayward person that the only remedy to their pain is Jesus Christ and his love for them. The only remedy for our division, for our hurt with one another, is to figure out what has Jesus done on the cross for us and how does it matter in this situation? What does Jesus do and how do we follow in his example? Finally, let me tell you this, it will take prayer. Now, I don't list prayer last because it's least important. In fact, I list it last because it is prayer that ties everything together and it ties, as you will likely see, this entire passage together. Jesus says the prayer of the righteous person has Great power as it is working. We gain the freedom to stop our striving to make things better and we have, get the energy to actually love others through prayer. In our legitimate desire for fellowship with others and our desire for a deeper relationship with Jesus, we must pursue the encounter through the avenue of prayer as we desire community and healthy, and fun, and transformational community? We must pursue a life of prayer. We must pursue that through an avenue of prayer. Do we desire love for people that we just don't want to be around? Stop and pray that God would shape your heart to understand, love, and have compassion on that person. Are you hurt by somebody? Stop and pray that God would change your heart and their heart and to, to expose wrongdoing. God does things through the Holy Spirit when we pray. Amazing, miraculous things. He moves in our hearts by convicting us of our sins. He stirs our affections for God. He orders our desires so that they align with the heart of God. And he fills us with compassion for others. That's what he does. When God's people pray, we come together admitting our mutual Love for God by humbling ourselves before the grace of God. Because when we pray, we are praying precisely because we are weak. We are praying precisely because we are needy and we are sinful. A group of praying people together has one thing in common. They're equally, in that moment, dependent on God. Because you wouldn't be praying unless you needed help. And so there's something amazing when you come together with God's people and say, I think we, we all need God to the same degree. None of us is closer to not needing the grace of God than anyone else. So let us just determine in our hearts and live out through expression that Holy Cross is a hospital for sick people rather than a hotel for saints. And a more faithful community of God's people will increasingly grow tired of craving certain kinds of people or craving certain kinds of possessions or locations or circumstances or positions or experiences or appearances. But we will find our rest in God's acceptance.